Well, tonight I want to, for the third time, try to complete my introductory message to the um, to the period of Scripture, which reveals um, God reveals further light on the covenant of grace through the ministry of Moses. We know that um, God is a God of covenants. Paul talked about Israel having the covenants and we've traced some so far, beginning with the covenant of works, the covenant God made with Adam and Eve. Uh, That was a covenant which was, if you do this, uh, if you obey this, then you will be rewarded on the basis of your human obedience. Well, we know, although capable of doing that, they failed, broke that covenant And we have been unable to keep the law in that way ever since because of sin coming into the world. We've studied the uh, covenant that God made with Noah and his family. That was a covenant to preserve the seed of the woman. There was an even larger covenant, the covenant of common grace that he made with Noah and his family and all of creation even the animals, uh, which is a, a covenant which is in force even to this day. God will not destroy the world by water. And we've studied at great length the covenant with Abraham, the covenant where great leaps were taken in the, uh, in the revelation of the covenant of grace or the gospel um, in which the necessity for faith becomes prominent we studied all of that and we've reached we're reaching a point I'm trying to pave the way for us then to go on to study this further covenant this covenant this mosaic covenant the covenant of the law and uh, I was saying last time that there's a great deal of misunderstanding about the law and that before we, as I promised to do next time, actually get, get to the scripture, um, we do need to be clear about what the law is and about what the gospel is. And last time we focused on the role of the law in the life of the believer. And uh, we defined ways in which the Christian is free from the law. And we defined ways in which the law still plays a role in the Christian life. But there were things uh, that I didn't get to say which, which are important to say. Particularly in terms of the role the law has in terms of the unbeliever. I didn't get to that. And it's important that I cover that. There's a few more things I want to say and possibly repeat in terms of the role of the law with the Christian So the law of God is revealed to us, obviously, in Scripture. And it's important to try to understand the origin and the development of it. If you ask most people what the the law of God is, most people would just say the Ten Commandments, wouldn't they? I'm sure I would have said that at some point in my Christian life. Well, that is part of the law of God. But... Uh, that's only part of the law of God. God's will 
as expressed in, in all of his commands or prohibitions to man and indeed to angels precede, they must precede Moses, of course. Um, they precede, the t- they precede rather, the Ten Commandments. And as I've just said, the law uh, begins with Adam and uh, the law was given to Adam in the form of a covenant of works which contained a promise of everlasting life conditional upon him and his posterities perfect and perpetual obedience to God's law. Life was promised upon fulfilling the covenant and death was promised upon breaking the covenant. And Adam and Eve, as unfallen creatures, had the power and ability to keep the law of God. But after the, but we know, of course, that the uh, the fall happened. But after the fall, after sin came into the world, the law of God continued to be man's perfect rule of righteousness. And in due course, in in, in fact, in the Mosaic covenant. God's law was codified, was written down on tablets of stone, two tablets of stone, uh, four commandments in relation to God, six relation in six commandments in relation to man's duty to his fellow man. And this was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in the context of this Mosaic covenant. And the Ten Commandments, uh, it contained the moral law of God, the same moral law that had been enforced previously, right from the beginning of creation, but had not yet been codified in that way. This was the moral law of God concerning uh, man's relation to God and to man. And in addition, God gave to Israel as the infant church, ceremonial laws and ordinances, many of which typified the work of Christ and Christ himself. Alongside the ceremonial law, God gave to Israel as a nation judicial laws, specifically related to Israel while she remained a state, a nation. The ceremonial laws and the judicial laws ended, have ended. The ceremonial laws ended under the New Testament. Why? Because the types were fulfilled when Christ came. And the judicial laws expired when Israel as a nation ended. There is one small caveat with that which we find in the Westminster Confession, which refers to what what is known as um, the general equity or fairness, which which are contained in some of those those judicial laws that were given to Israel. I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole, but basically, the uh, the Westminster Divine said that it would be wise for nations, secular nations, to uh, to borrow some of the equity, some of the fairness of those judicial laws from the from the old covenant for secular law um, but where essentially the judicial laws have ended 
And of course, the moral law, as summed up in the Ten Commandments, applies to everyone, applies to everyone to this day, both Christian and non-Christian. The moral law of God applies. So that is the law. So defining the terms, reminding you of the definition of what the law is. If that is the law, then what is the gospel? Well, we know because man fell, and because sin has rendered man incapable of eternal life through the covenant of works or or law-keeping, the Lord God made a second covenant with man, which is termed the covenant of grace which is the focus of our study. And in this covenant, this wonderful covenant, sinners are freely offered as a a gift, life and salvation by Jesus Christ, only requiring us to have faith in Jesus Christ that we might be saved. And we know from a deeper understanding of Scripture that the Holy Spirit for those of us who have become Christians was already working in us to make us willing and able to believe even the faith was given to us in a secret operation of the Holy Spirit so those are a reminder of the brief reminder of the meaning of the terms just one more thing I want just to be clear about and, and this is often a cause of confusion when we talk about the law. There is such a thing as the Old Covenant. Now the Old Covenant is the Mosaic Covenant. It's the covenant God made with the nation of Israel through Moses, through the giving of the Ten Commandments, the judicial law and the ceremonial law. That's one thing. It's a covenant added for a particular reason which we'll come on to, added to the covenant of grace. But then there is the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the first half of the Bible. The Old Covenant and the Old Testament are not synonymous. The Old Covenant is contained within, is recorded within the Old Testament, but the Old Testament uh, includes... um, Revelation prior to Moses um, and includes a whole load of uh, revelation and wisdom which applies to us today. The Old Testament is the Word of God. The Old Covenant has ended. The covenant with Moses is no more. But the Old Testament is not ended for the Christian. The Old Testament and the New Testament are the word of God as a package together. So don't confuse the Old Covenant with the Old Testament. If we're not careful, we we end up saying that the Old Testament is ended when the New Testament came in. That's a misunderstanding. It's only the Old Covenant that is ended. So I think that's helpful to keep that distinction. So there are a few more, um, having just defined some key terms. There are a few more essential things that need to be said about the law and the gospel. 
So keeping it basic again. The Bible consists of, <clears throat> in Reformed teaching, uh, it says the Bible consists of two parts, the law and the gospel. And importantly, in Reformed teaching, the law and the gospel are both considered to be uh, a means of grace. That's important to try and let that sink in. That is to say, both the law and the gospel have a saving purpose. They both have a saving purpose and end. They do not both have a saving power. The gospel has a saving power. The law does not have a saving power. But they both have a saving purpose. This distinction between the law and the gospel as I've just said, has nothing to do with the distinction between the Old and the New Testaments. There is law in the gospel, in, there is law and gospel in the Old Testament, and there is law and gospel in the New Testament. The covenant of grace, the gospel, runs right through both testaments, as I've said many times, as a single covenant but is administered in different ways and at different times. Hebrews 1, verse 1. The law, also, the law also runs through both testaments. The law in its widest sense. The law as the will, the commands and the prohibitions of God run through the New Testament as well. The gospel does not abrogate or end the law of God. It ends the Mosaic covenant. It doesn't end the law of God. So the law, although added as a covenant specifically with the nation of Israel through Moses, the Mosaic covenant, in its broadest sense is everything in the Bible which reveals God's will expressed in the form of a command or a prohibition. The gospel in the Old and the New Testament includes everything that is revealed and promised concerning the redeeming work of the Father through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And each of these two parts of the Bible, each of these two parts of the Word of God has its place in the gracious work of God to redeem his people, law and gospel. And it's so important to be clear. And this isn't easy. This is why people get so confused. There is a sense in which the gospel is simple. A little child can understand it. But there are complexities once you get into, the, uh, into a mature understanding of the Bible. And we have to work at it sometimes. You know, to really understand the Bible, you have to put some hard work in. Um, it's, it's, that's why it's... Um, it's not just all about the heart, it's also about the mind. It's not all about the mind, it's also about the heart. It's both, and the body. So, we do need, it's not, we not all Bible study is easy. So, I don't blame you if you're finding this difficult. It does take, and this is why I'm repeating and trying to say it in different ways, in the hope that it sinks into us. <clears throat> 
And it is so important to try to be clear, particularly in the pulpit, in which ways there is a contrast between the law and the Gospels, and in which ways there is continuity of the law in the Gospel age. And last time, we studied the limits of the law, the law's ongoing role in the Christian life. I'm not going to repeat all of that. But tonight, I want to briefly consider the ongoing role of the law in terms of unbelievers as well as believers in the New Testament age. And if there's time, um, I want to complete this just by briefly explaining the new covenant um, and particularly what is new about the new covenant. If I was to ask you what's new about the new covenant, I won't do it to you, but just think, what, what would you say if I was to ask you 500 words to do an essay on what is new about the new covenant? Take some thinking through. So I want to go on to that if there is time. But first of all, let's go back to some basics and let's get some help from others because this is difficult. So it was John Calvin in his Christian Institutes who identified three ongoing uses of the law in its widest sense. He said that there, were, there was a civil use of the law, there was a gospel use of the law, and there was a use of the law in terms of the ongoing Christian life. And these are often referred to, nearly always referred to, as the first, the second, and the third uses of the law. And if you haven't read Calvin's Institutes, in a sense I don't blame you, but try and read it. Try, try to really get to grips with it because it will stand you in good stead. This third use of the law as, a, as a, an ongoing role in the Christian life is what we studied at great length, some length last time. And that third use of the law, as it relates to the Christian believer and to the church, is the most disputed one of those three uses of the law. Um, Martin Luther and John Calvin, who were contemporary figures in the Re- Reformation, Um, They disagreed a bit, at least, about the third use of the law. Um, I'll come on to and explain about this in a second. I I believe that John Calvin was right and Martin Luther was wrong. Uh, But I think Martin Luther's concerns need to be considered. And we will consider them a bit. But I'll park that for now we'll come back to that in a second first of all let's be a bit clearer about what John Calvin said about the law and these three parts of the law and I'm going to borrow some images from um, it doesn't matter if it's from it's from a theologian at Gordon Conwell seminary and he explained he explains the three uses of the law as follows First of all, he says, God's law, and this is, this is the ongoing role of the law today, God's law is firstly a bridle to restrain sin in society. 
So that's fairly easy, isn't it? So this is a common grace function of the law, um, which sees the, the Ten Commandments, which sees the creation ethics, you, know, you shall not murder, and things like that, as a basic framework for governing society. It's not saying that we, we, we take on all the, the laws of Israel. It's saying if you've got any sense whatsoever, you will, you will use all of God's... Uh, law to form your uh, government your governmental law because it's God's law Um, and its function is to restrain sin to punish the evildoer to create or at least keep some civil order in society such that the gospel can be preached and the elect can be gathered in it's its only function it's not going so far as you know Oliver Cromwell saying that we can create a Christian country by act of parliament. <laughs> that didn't work. But there is a role for leaders, politicians to refer to the Bible, to refer to the law of God, and to use the wisdom of the Bible in law in their law making. The second use of the law um, is, is Professor Ryan Reeves. I suppose I should uh, say his name. Professor Ryan Reeves. Thinking of how Calvin explained the law. Secondly, he says, God's law is a mirror that shows us our sins and points us to Christ. Well, this is what Paul teaches, isn't it, in Romans. The law reveals to us our desperate plight and need of a saviour. And good evangelism includes preaching of the law, which is like holding up a mirror in front of people and saying, this is what you look like, according to God. And until recently, there's, there's not been much disagreement amongst evangelical churches on these first two functions of the law. I mean, there is now, but the world's gone, not only the world, the church has gone mad, hasn't it? But up until recently, there wasn't much disagreement. But then there's this third use of the law, which the professor I quoted says is like a flashlight, uh, which is used by Christians to know the path ahead. The law teaches, in other words, those who have been justified what is pleasing to God. I mean, how are we to know what God likes and what what God dislikes? It's only by what he says, what he's revealed. Um, Now, I I think we've already established, more than established, um, that there is indeed such a thing as this third use of the law, as Calvin taught. But Martin Luther and Lutherans, even to this day, um, are very cautious about using the law in this third way. I don't want to get into it, but Luther did slightly develop um, this later on. But at least initially, he, he thought, <clears throat> he said, that the human will, whether it's a Christian or an unchristian, will always be terrified and feel condemned by the law. 
And he was concerned that if uh, you urge Christians to obedience to the law, it will engender pride in some Christians and it will create self-despair in others. Now, as I say, I don't agree with Martin Luther, which sounds a bit that, even saying that sounds ridiculous, but it doesn't sound, it sounds better saying I agree with John Calvin, doesn't it? Um, I think John Calvin was right, but I don't think we should dismiss Luther too quickly. What he identifies, I think, is a real risk. Not in terms of the third use of the law, the law being a guide for Christian living, not being true, but a risk of the law being preached to Christians in a way which causes more harm than good. And this is the kind of preaching which mixes up, messes up and jumbles up and confuses the law and the gospel. Let me remind you, the word is divided into law and gospel. Um, it's important to note, as Luther often did, that within, as I just said, in, within scripture, both Old and New Testaments, there is a pattern of commands and a pattern of promises. And they're not confused. Um, in his Freedom of the Christian, the book he wrote, Martin Luther wrote, he said, the entire scripture of God is divided into two parts, commands and promises. And his associate, Philip Melanchthon, wrote, all of scripture is either law or gospel. Melanchthon also wrote, the law shows the disease, the gospel, the cure. Now, as... <laughs> One of the quickest ways to create um, a dead church or to make a living church dead in quick time is to confuse the law and the gospel. And I'm afraid it's all too common. And in every age, it seems we have to fight and fight and fight to keep the gospel pure. Uh, and the gospel can be lost sight of so easily uh, and we're so tempted to turn good news into bad news. We just can't seem to keep our hands off. off. The gospel is good news. And this, happened, this, this, this seems to be a perennial problem. The gospel during the period of the early church fathers was already moving away from the gospel of free salvation. And much of the teaching seemed to be something like um, salvation is available to those who come to Christ uh, and behave themselves. And we do have to behave ourselves, of course, but the way they put it was not scriptural often. By the 13th century, the gospel had come to mean something completely different than what Paul had taught. Um, the gospel had come to mean a progressive transformation of a person's moral life. The gospel equaled progressive sanctification. Well, the gospel became the same as sanctification. Justification was missed out. Um, 
Grace came to be thought of as a kind of medicine that you received through the sacraments. It was like a, a shot in the arm you had every time you took the host. And the degree of your justification equaled the degree of your sanctification. So salvation is for those who cooperate with grace and obey the law. That isn't what Paul taught. And if we ever preach the law in the third use of the term to Christians in terms of do this and live, which is what the covenant of works was, if we put in some kind of conditionality, then we're mixing up law and gospel. And I'll go on to explain more about this in a minute. You see, the law says that we must do, and the gospel says it's done. That's the difference. The law says work, and the gospel says rest. The gospel is the good news that our justification has been earned for us by Christ and is freely offered to us. So if that is true, well let me let, let, let that sink in first of all. That, that is the gospel, we need to start there. Now we're all going to have in our minds, but well, what about this, what about that? Isn't that going to lead to this? And to lead? That's the problem Paul faced in Romans 6. Shall we say, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The way he was preaching the gospel was creating this um, misunderstanding that, that the grace is so free, it's so full of grace. Isn't it a license to sin? No, it isn't. But the point is, he preached it in such a way, it was, so, it was such a generous offer, such a free offer, that that objection naturally came up. So we, there's no need for us to paddle back on the goodness of the good news. It is free, a free gift of salvation. Now there, there are other things to say, and when we get to the end of this sermon, I hope we'll get the, re, the right balance, but start with that. So, having let that sink, sink in, What do we then make of such verses as this? If the gospel is a free gift and all of what I've just said, what do we make of a verse like this? Jesus said, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall save it. That's tough. What about all the verses which tell the Christian to draw near to God, to submit ourselves to God, to be content with what we have, to hold fast, to be holy, and and so on and so on and so on. These verses are saying, you, Christian, must do this. It's at that point, dear friends, that the law and the gospel can so easily get mixed up. What we must be clear about is that the covenant of grace and the law, the gospel and the law, both 
They both include obligations to obedience, but they are two radically different ways a man can relate to his creator. The promises of the new covenant come with responsibilities and obligations, but they are, oblig- they are obligations within the covenant of grace and not within the covenant of the law. They are not, you must do this and live promises. Jesus didn't say, if you take up your cross and follow me, you will over a period of time qualify for discipleship, did he? He says, part and parcel of the response to me is, if any man will come after me, me, let him deny himself, and so on. In other words, the promise of the new covenant is, I will be thy God, and our response is, I will belong to your people. It is a response to new covenant love. It's a faithful, consecrated love which is described as a relationship similar to a man and his wife, a bride and his bridegroom, and a father and his children. It's not law. I'm not saying it's any less tough, but it's not law. Faith, repentance, and turning to God are the actions of someone who has been captivated by the love of God through the gospel. I didn't ask Junior and Abigail this, I should have probably, but I'm going to just, if you don't mind, just use you as as an illustration. Um, When I married Junior and Abigail, you may have noticed that um, I didn't say to Junior and I didn't say to Abigail, you must love one another, did I? I I didn't need to persuade them. I didn't need to use law. I didn't say to Abigail, you have to obey your husband or the terrors of the law will come upon you. Their responses to one another were freely given in love and yet they were significant obligations when you think of it. Not to look at another woman, not to look at another man, to be faithful to one another through all of life, to share all your possessions, to look after each other in sickness, and in health, until you, one of you dies, that's a massive... Now, I could have presented that as law. I could have said, you must, you should. If you don't, well, this is going to... But it isn't like that, is it? it? You both married each other freely. You didn't feel like law. It was a legal thing. It's one sense. But it wasn't law to you. It was... It was, you were, it was an act of love. It was a response of, of within the context of a loving relationship. Well, that is the obligations placed upon the Christian through the gospel are like a man and a wife or a bride and a bridegroom. They may be, there are huge obligations to, to, to take up our cross every day, to leave everything. But it doesn't feel like we're it doesn't feel like we're making a sacrifice it's not law it's not self effort it's a response because we're captivated by the love of God 
faith and repentance are loving responses towards God through which we enter the covenant of grace. The law of God is written on our hearts and the moral law of God remains as a rule of life. The law, as I say, is always God's good pleasure. But in the new covenant, God works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. There's no human achievement. There's no human obedience as the ground for any blessing. It's not conditional. That's the difference. On paper, the demands of the gospel are equally difficult as the demands of the law, but they're not conditional upon human obedience. And they're also coming from a different place. They're coming from a response of love. And if we haven't got that in our hearts, that love for Christ, that love for the gospel, that the Christian life is not for you, it's going to be, your life will be miserable. Because you're just going to try and be keeping something that you can never keep. And you're not, you're not made, you're not, um, you haven't got it in you to keep, to keep God's law. If you haven't got the love of Christ shed abroad in your heart, forget it. It'll be awful. Another way of um, putting the same thing in a different way uh, is to say that both the law and the gospel have commands and promises. The law and the gospel, though, have different conditions. The condition of the law is perfect and perpetual obedience And the condition of the gospel is faith that trusts. Faith which which rests in and receives the finished work of Christ. Jesus said the work of God is to believe in him whom he has sent. So then. Given all of that. Why did God give the law to Moses or why the Mosaic Covenant? Um, well, we've said it, I'm just going to repeat it. Uh, because it's so easy to go wrong at this point. The law, try and understand this, the law was added to administer the covenant of grace more effectively. It was added to increase the effectiveness of the covenant of grace. Because the law has a saving purpose. Um, This included the political or civil use to restrain sin and promote law keeping. The common grace effect of keeping order in society. There's the pedagogical function, Galatians 3.19. The teaching function, I should say. The law was added because of transgressions. Romans 3.30, by the law is the knowledge of sin. In other words, Paul teaches that the purpose of the law, the second purpose of the law, was to increase Israel's sense of sin and to get them to see their need for a saviour. Because the law, in this context, brings man under conviction of sin and makes him conscious of his inability to save himself. He is driven to Christ by the law. And that's why the law was added to the covenant of grace. To drive men, not to Moses, not to the law, but to Christ. 
to hold up a mirror to, to them, to say this is your true condition, this is the, the standards you have to reach to be saved through law keeping, you cannot do it, you are condemned by the law, therefore you must go to Christ. It serves, the, the law was added, it serves the covenant of grace like some great evangelist pointing people to Christ. It's like John the Baptist levelling the road ahead and saying, go that way, go this way, to Christ. The law's like an axe felling us right at the root of the tree, right at our knees, knees making us fall. It slays us as we fall upon the ground and Christ has to lift us up. And then the third use, as we've said, is this didactical use of the law, this teaching use of the law as a rule of life for believers, most fully explained by Christ himself in the Sermon on the Mount, leading us in the way of life and salvation. That is the law and the gospel. Um, we, we, there'll be times when I'll need to remind us of some of those things as we go through. But then, just to complete the circle, this covenant of grace goes right through the Bible, is administered in these different covenants, and then at the end, finally, it's administered through and in the new covenant. The new covenant. And uh, we read Jeremiah 31 verses 31 to 34 where Jeremiah, and in fact Ezekiel does the same thing, almost exactly the same words. They promise a new covenant. And this, of course, demonstrates that the old covenant was temporary. The old Mosaic covenant was temporary. Hebrews 8 verse 13 says, In that he saith, a new covenant he hath made the first old. So what are we saying here? What we're saying here is that it was always God's plan for there to be a new covenant. It's not like the old covenant failed um, and God had to have a plan B. That's what the old Schofield Bible, you won't remember the old Schofield Bible, Lee might. Um, the old dispensational teaching that because the law failed as a means of redemption, God, and, and because the Jews didn't listen to Jesus, there was a great reverting to a, another plan. And that the gospel at that point came in as a, as a as an alternative way, but of course we know just from reading Jeremiah that it was always God's plan for there to be a new covenant. Um, so it's better to think of this as a transition from one phase to another phase, a transition to a greater and a more effective phase in the plan of redemption and so a good place to go and if you could turn to it 
um, a good place to go is Galatians 3, verses 24 and 25 to 25. This is a good explanation of, um, of this movement from the old to the new. It says, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. Now the word schoolmaster refers to the pedagogue or the guardian in the Roman household. He was normally an educated slave. They always went for a Greek slave, if they could, an educated Greek slave whose job was to conduct a young boy to and fro from school and to supervise his conduct. The family placed their young lad under a guardian. But when the boy grew up, the guardian was no longer needed. The boy advanced and transitioned away from the guardian. But what he didn't transition away from was everything that the guardian had taught him. Everything the guardian had taught him as a child was foundational to what he was going to learn. In fact, he wouldn't be able to learn it if he hadn't had that foundational truth. However, there was a time where he had to grow up and move on. And Paul is using that analogy to show that the old covenant administration was for the people of God in their childhood. Israel was the church in its childhood. I would say probably in its adolescence. That's the best way of looking at it. In the New Testament, the people of God reach adulthood and the childhood guardian of the law is no longer required in that way. But that which the guardian taught the child, the Old Testament, remains true and foundational even though we are now adults. Um, you see, as I said before, in the Old Testament and the New, there is law and there, and there is gospel. But we have to say that in the Old Covenant, there's an awful lot of law. The cast of the Old Covenant is very lawful. There's gospel in it, but it's, it's cast with a lot of law. And that's not surprising. Um, if... Um, well, I'll talk about my te- my children when they were teenagers. You were so well behaved compared to mine. But when my Tim was say thirteen or fourteen or fifteen, and uh, maybe older, and uh, perhaps you wanted to go somewhere and leave him in the house, uh, we'd put all sorts of conditions you must not do this you must not do that because we know if you put those things in place you could come back to a house on fire law was appropriate yes I'll, I'll, I'll leave you here um, 
we're going to be a couple of hours you're not allowed to do this and you're not allowed to do that and you must make sure the cat's put out wherever it might be law, law, law because he's a teenager now Tim now is in his early 30s now if he was I don't think he's going to but if he was to say can can I stay in your house on my own well you go out I'd expect him not to wreck the place um, but I wouldn't say anything I would know that from all the way he'd been brought up he would know how to how not to, to, to trash everything it would be inappropriate for me to say to my adult son you must not this, do this and you must not do that and you don't forget to do this and don't forget to do that because he's an adult now he's still under law he's not allowed to commit arson in my house but he's not under law in that sense he's, he's now an adult and, and this is the difference between the old and the new covenants to a great extent the old covenant is the church in its infancy in its adolescence it needed law oh boy when we read the Old Testament we can see why can't we um, for the Christian it's not all about law we are adults spiritual adults the old covenant was the guardian that prepared the way for the Lord Jesus Christ and when the reality of the Lord Jesus came that which was typical and promissory underwent a change it became old in the light of the new was it uh, I think it was Tony Blair that said to John Major when um, in the last parliamentary questions when Tony Blair was, had just become Prime Minister he said I'm, I'm the future now see John Major's history I'm the future now the, old, the new had come and the old how quickly the, that which was in power was enforced how quickly it faded and was old and the new covenant makes the old old Um, the shadow gives way to the image black and white gives way to bright colours even I'm not old enough to remember colour TV coming in but our parents talk talk about when colour TVs first came in you know the colour so much better than the black and white Um, it says in Hebrews the law For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. You see the lights come. That that black and white drawing is being filled in with colour now. All the types and shadows have been filled in they're, they're, they're old now because Jesus has come and he's fulfilled all the promises 
And why was this transition necessary from the old to the new? Well, it was necessary because the old covenant had serious limitations. It was not sufficient to accomplish God's full promises to Abraham. And we read of all of that in Hebrews, of course. But in Hebrews 8, verse 6, it says, But now hath he obtained, that's the Lord Jesus, hath obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So we emphasize as Reformed Christians the continuity of the old into the new. But let us not fail to emphasize the newness of the new covenant. What were these limitations that required a new covenant to be made? Well, I've mentioned them. Uh, I've already mentioned some. The knowledge of Christ and his work was mainly revealed through the Old Testament sacrifices. And at best, it only gave a shadowy profile. Nothing is clear as the knowledge revealed in the New Testament. And the Old Testament sacrifices, as Hebrews teaches us, had no power in themselves to save. They were but types that had to be fulfilled to have any meaning. No, but that, the, 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 the Old Testament worshipper was saved through faith in what the type signified. But if there was no fulfilment of what that type was signifying, then it would have no typological value. Christ had to come. The new had to come. The type is worthless without the anti-type. The day of fulfilment must, must come. Why? For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. Only Jesus can do that. The other limitation was that in the, in the old dispensation... The Holy Spirit was not given in the same fullness as in the New Testament. Now the Holy Spirit was of course present in the Old Testament saints. Um, David prayed to take not thy Holy Spirit from me. But in proportion, in scale if we like. There is a much fuller outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant. Jesus said in John 7.39, the Holy Ghost was not yet given. Well, Luke, I should say, John said this as a comment. The Holy Ghost was not yet given because that Jesus was not yet glorified. There was a ascension which the Holy Spirit, although present in the Old Testament dispensation, was not given in that fullest sense because Jesus was not yet glorified. And then the Old Testament was limited to the covenant of grace in that salvation, in salvation, uh, and restricted for the most part 
to the nation of Israel. There were people that were saved outside of Israel, but if you read the Old Testament, the vast majority of saints are Jews. Salvation is of the Jews. It was mainly Jews who were saved. So what is the difference then between the old and the new? Um, Well, just to finish that point, what a massive difference in the New Testament. The barrier, the racial barriers are all broken down between Jew and Gentile. It doesn't make a, a blind bit of difference whether you're black, white or whatever. Whether you're rich or poor, whether you're a Greek or a Roman or a Jew. All the barriers are broken down. It's an international, worldwide offer of the gospel. And a much wider way than it was ever the case in the old covenant. And so we must emphasise the unity between the old and the new. But we must also emphasise the difference And as preachers, we are now ministers of the new covenant and not of the old. We use the old, we preach from the old, but we are ministers of the new covenant. The nature of the New Testament blessings are the same. It's the same salvation. Salvation by grace through faith in Christ. However, the difference in the new is that there is a much greater degree of blessing than the Old Testament saints ever received. There's a greater abundance of blessing and in a higher degree. The revelation of grace is fuller because the New Testament believer, you and I, do not, we do not have to look to Christ through the prism of types and shadows. We see Christ through the word of God the full revelation of the written word of God that's something that they didn't have in the Old Testament we have the completed canon of scripture and we see Christ face to face through his word one day we'll see him face to face without the word but now in these pilgrim years we see Christ face to face through his word We behold his glory as of the only begotten of the Father through his word. We behold the finished work of Christ upon the cross and we have the full explanation of its meaning and an explanation of all the implications of the cross. Well, they didn't have that in the old covenant. We have a full, a much fuller understanding of salvation. And grace has come to all nations, Gentiles as well as Jews. All shall know me, said Jeremiah, from the least to the greatest. And perhaps most significantly of all, as I've said, the New Testament believer possesses in greater degree the Holy Spirit. That's the great difference. One has come who baptises us with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That was the great prophecy of John the Baptist that was the great difference this was the newness of the new that the baptizer had come the Lord Jesus Christ and the church of Jesus Christ assembled waiting for the promise of the father which saith 
he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. And when the day of Pentecost fully came, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the house where they were sitting. That day has changed everything. It's changed everything. We live in the age of the Holy Spirit. This is that, the Apostle said, which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And that's the newness of the new. And we need to live in that. We need to live in this age of the Holy Spirit. That's the big difference. This is what John Calvin wrote about so much in his institute. Like so much that they said he was a theologian of the Holy Spirit. And so I trust that that will help us to see and understand the sweep of the redemptive story of the Bible. Of course it has, in closing, one last chapter to be completed, hasn't it? There's yet to come the second coming of Christ, the final judgment, the resurrection of the dead, the new heavens and the new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness that we look forward to but we already have the guarantee we are sealed by the spirit as a guarantee of that promise as the deposit guaranteeing us that which is to come and dear friends we have a covenant making and a covenant keeping God and uh, I hope next time we study this to begin looking in more detail at the revelation that God made through the ministry of Moses Amen Feel free to contact us at Sovereign Grace Church in Tiverton email us at grace2seekers at gmail.com that's grace to seekers at gmail.com alternatively you can visit our website at www.sovereigngracereformedchurch.co.uk